Hey, everybody. Come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to episode 105 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is John Cumming. I am the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. We have a terrific show lined up for you this week with a special focus on battery minerals, particularly cobalt, as well as lithium. First off, we caught up with the chairman and CEO of Cobalt 27 Capital, Anthony Milewski. Reached him in London via Skype. He's going to tell us a little bit about the news in Cobalt. And then we will stay in London with our uh, Battery Metals Roundtable. And that was at our Canadian Mining Symposium. In that case, we had Richard Quarisa, our staff writer here, moderating. And we had a panel with Lance Hooper. He's the president and COO of Cobalt Blockchain. They're the ones um, using blockchain to track artisanal miner-generated cobalt in the DRC, as well as uh, other kind of trading in cobalt out of there. And then we have Guy Bourassa, the president and CEO of Namaska Lithium. Of course, they have that uh, Hard Rock Lithium project in Quebec. It seemed kind of theoretical a few years ago, but it's gotten real, real fast, and they've raised quite a bit of money, and that's uh, rushing towards production there in Quebec. And then we have Rebecca Gordon. She's the head of technology, metals, and energy at CRU Consulting in London, and she gives us the overview of uh, battery metals. And then we also have Robin Goad. He's the president and CEO of Fortune Minerals, and uh, that project up there in the territories, that's been kicking around for many years now, but it uh, seems like the time is ripe for Fortune Minerals, so we'll get Robin's input as well. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. They're a group of 17 companies exploring and developing mineral projects in the Yukon. If you want to follow their Twitter feed, they're at at InvestYukon on Twitter. Their website is yukonminingalliance.ca. That's a terrific place to go to if you're looking for just a roundup of what's going on up there. Some of the latest news from one of the Yukon Mining Alliance members is uh, from Victoria Gold. They have their Dublin Gulch Gold property where they're building their Eagle Gold Mine, and they have uh, carried out a hedging program. Yes, the dreaded H word, but uh, it's not too bad here. They bought put options, and they sold call options on 100,000 ounces of gold on both, and um, there's nothing too crazy there. Our second sponsor is the Grosso Group out of Vancouver, led by entrepreneur Joe Grosso, and a lot of their focus is on Argentina, where they have three companies, Blue Sky Uranium, looking for uranium. Golden Arrow Resources, which has a producing asset as well as other projects, uh, especially in the precious metals. And then we have Argentina Lithium and Energy, which has a uh, lithium projects up in the uh, Lithium Triangle in the northwest corner of the country. You can go to the Grosso Group's website at grossogroup.com and uh, find out more about the group and their three main companies. Now we're going to take a little break and come back with a bit of a commodities roundup.
commodity taking the most headlines these days continues to be oil, which is hitting new highs that uh, haven't been seen since late 2014. The futures uh, in Brent are just hitting uh, 80. Let me see now the NYMEX uh, West Texas Intermediate futures are um, 72-ish. But it's very interesting here. You have U.S. oil exports are hitting record highs, but at the same time, the uh, crude stockpiles in the U.S. are falling. So that's enough to keep driving prices higher. Turning to precious metals, it's an ugly, uh, it's an ugly scene here in the precious metals. We've hit a new low for gold for 2018. It broke through the 1300 mark. So at the moment here, it is at 1290.70 up an ounce. And over 30 days, the price of gold has fallen 56.50. That's down 4.2%. Although uh, over the past year, it's actually up $30 or 2.4%. And uh, all across the board, precious metals, silver is at 16.42. Platinum is at 8.89. Palladium is at 9.74. Rhodium uh, breaks the trend and is up 65 bucks at uh, an even $2,000. And looking through the charts here, uh, you know, gold is just declining over the past month. You really have to go up to a 10-year chart before it starts looking good again, <laughs> unfortunately. But that 1,200 base uh, looks pretty strong there for gold. And turning to silver, again, you go to the 10-year silver chart, looks a pretty good base at uh, $15. Platinum is also kind of flatlining on a five-year chart. It's staying above $900 there. And uh, palladium uh, looks pretty good on the uh, five-year chart. It's just marched up steadily from $500, and it's now uh, in the $1,000 area. So palladium's doing well. Jumping over to base metals, uh, aluminum uh, on a per-pound basis is at three. And it's kind of leveled off there after all the excitement. Peaked around uh, 114, and now it's leveling off again around 103. So uh, all that excitement of the past month and a half has kind of subsided. Turning to copper, copper is trading at 310 a pound. And it is kind of going sideways, but holding above the $3 mark. Pretty much over the past uh, eight months, it's held above $3 for the most part. And again, if you look at the five-year chart, it had a really strong march up from $2, and now is at $3. So copper's looking good there. Zinc is at $1.40. Lead is at $1.06. The chart for zinc looks pretty bad here. It's slipping from $1.60 in February 2018, and it's just been on a slide down 20 cents now, and it's looking to be headed towards $1.20. Lead has also come off in the past three or so months. From a dollar twenty, now it's uh, just hanging above a dollar. Nickel, on the other hand, is up a little bit. It's at a six sixty one a pound, and it's been pretty steady the last six months. If you look at the one year nickel, it's another one uh, similar to copper. It's just had this march forward from four dollars to six fifty ish. So that's encouraging. Turning to uranium, uranium uh, the spot price is at twenty one seventy five, up seventy five cents on the week. And a bit of news out of the U.S. The Energy Secretary, Rick Perry, has formally ended construction of a facility meant to reprocess weapons-grade plutonium and uranium into fuel for reactors. So that's another uh, positive for uranium prices. Another metal on the uptrend is iron ore prices. Over the past uh, two months or so, it has gone up from uh, the low 60s and is now in the high 60s. It's not, not crazy, but it's on the rise again after that precipitous fall in uh, the March month 
where it dropped from just below 80 to uh, 60 some dollars a pound, that's 62% fines. You've had this surge in Chinese steel production, but iron ore prices have only uh, increased a bit over the past month, and that's because the Australian producers are cranking up productions, especially towards the end of their uh, Australian financial year. Now let's talk a little bit more about cobalt because we're going to be um, talking quite a bit about cobalt for the rest of the program here. Cobalt's well above $40 a pound. Uh, another one of these great charts is basically quadrupled over the past couple of years, especially from mid-2016 onward. It was just around $10 um, in June 2016. There's been news out of the DRC. That's where Glencore has such a huge presence. Glencore, you know, out of Switzerland, uh, it's the world's largest supplier of cobalt, and it's set to double production by 2020, and a lot of that is coming out of the DRC. But at the same time, uh, they've been partnered with Dan Gertler, the Israeli billionaire, and the U.S. Treasury Department put uh, severe sanctions on Gertler um, just late last year, so makes it difficult for Glencore to pay uh, Gertler his uh, royalties due for their, in their partnerships in the DRC. So uh, last month, Gertler began legal action against Glencore, claiming nearly $3 billion in unpaid royalties. Uh, and Glencore says it's uh, you know having trouble paying Gertler because of these sanctions. At the same time, uh, Jekemin, the DRC government-owned miner, is threatening to z- dissolve its joint venture with Glencore, and it has accused the Swiss company of draining the company of assets and squeezing dividends. Uh, this all gets complicated with the president of the DRC, Joseph Kabila. He uh, was supposed to step down at the uh, almost two years ago, but there's never been elections, so so he is uh, you know hiked up the taxes in the DRC, and it's still undecided if he's going to run or, or what's going to happen there. But certainly the extra tax revenue would uh, help him in any kind of re-election bid. Now, the commodity research and consulting company Roskill had some interesting comments on the cobalt market. They noted that the cobalt prices have reached dizzying heights this year. And here's a quote from their report. It's a smaller report. Roskill's base case forecast suggests that demand from the battery sector alone could reach 240,000 tons by 2027, or more than double the size of the whole market today. That's, we're talking about cobalt here. Going on, while the major refined producers in China all have aggressive expansion plans, Roskill considers that the recent rate of capacity expansion will need to increase if supply is to meet demand through the next decade. Crucially, this refined capacity will need feedstock, and while there should be sufficient amounts to the end of this decade, if Glencore's Katanga and ERG's RTR operations bring units into the market as expected, there is considerable uncertainty thereafter. And again, noting uh, cobalt is at a 10-year high on a per-ton basis. It's uh, just above $90,000 a ton. Now, before we take a break and come back with Anthony Milewski, I know we talk about battery types here. So in case you're not immediately familiar with lithium iron batteries, uh, there's certain terms that people throw around. I didn't want to interrupt them, but the um, LCO means lithium cobalt oxide. NMC means nickel manganese cobalt. NCA means nickel cobalt aluminum. And LMO means lithium manganese oxide. And finally, LFP means lithium iron Phosphate. So those are the five competing battery types going on right now. 
basically three quarters of the electric vehicle battery market are these NMC and NCA batteries. So if you're more of a mining person and you're looking for a good introduction to cobalt use in lithium batteries, I would just strongly suggest going to the Cobalt 27 website and you can download their May 2018 corporate presentation and there they go into explaining um, the EV market and the different types of batteries and why some are good and some are not so good or different uses for sort of a non-specialist but in quite a bit of nice detail as well so uh, I would highly recommend that so in the show notes on our website there I'll add a little link to that as well. And another study uh, just came out. Uh, One in five Americans say their next car will be electric. That kind of demand will obviously be great for electric cars. So let's take a break, and we will return with Anthony Milewski. with me, Anthony Milewski, the uh, CEO of Cobalt 27. These days, he's Mr. Cobalt. If you have any interest in Cobalt whatsoever, I highly recommend following Anthony on Twitter, where you get all kinds of Cobalt news. And and on uh, Twitter, we've got uh, at A underscore Milewski, the W. And Anthony, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks uh, thanks again for having me, John. I always enjoy joining uh, your show. Yeah. Now, uh, Cobalt's a very intriguing commodity these days. There's uh, the price action has been tremendous. But first off, the, the political news in the DRC, the biggest producer by far, just what do you make of what's going on with Glencore and uh, Gertler and the Kabila re-election possibly? Or what's, what, what do you make of it all? Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, if you're a country that needs a place to find additional tax revenue, uh, you know, an easy place to look is natural resources. And, you know, you're sort of coming into an election cycle in the Congo right now. And, you know, additional funds are needed at the government level. And so in a way, it's natural and I don't think unexpected that they would come back and revisit uh, taxes on on uh, commodities. And frankly, I think that over the course of the next year, it probably, uh, you know, it probably ends up in a good spot. It's just that the headline risk is there and and people trade around news out of the Congo. But I actually think over the course of 12 months, you'll find that the parties involved will reach a, you know, a settlement. I mean, it's important. It's important for the copper and cobalt markets, but it's also important for the country and for future capex for for mines where they get you know much of their much of their revenue. So ultimately, I think it's going to be settled in an amicable fashion. Right, right. And what do you see as a role for Kabila going down the road, say next year? So you know, look, I um, I think you know what's happening is they're trying to figure out who who the next president is going to be, and you know probably for Kabila. He's sitting there looking at the world and and thinking about you know his past decades and his family's past decades in power and they're trying to to figure out a way to bring someone in to replace him that makes sense and you know they'll do that under the cover of democratic elections but ultimately I suspect the person who replaces him will be hand chosen by by his inner circle. Mm-hmm. Now uh, switching gears here, uh, one of the most uh, exciting men on the planet these days is Elon Musk. Unfortunately, uh, during a I believe a conference call. He said uh, we think we can get cobalt to almost nothing in the um, Tesla cars. Uh, that must have caused your uh, stomach to churn. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, no, I mean, look, that's about like you know Elon saying that uh, you know the, the roadster is going to go 600 miles uh, on a single charge and not giving any details. So, so you know, I think what he was really referring to as he comes under pressure around his supply chain 
is the fact that Tesla uses an NCA battery. Mm-hmm. Tesla is is really the only company in the world that's using the NCA battery in any mass production. You know, there's a possibility that Toyota will also use the NCA battery. Mm-hmm. And the chemistry in that battery is an 811. That's eight part nickel, one, one part cobalt, one part aluminum. That's an important point because the rest of the world in China, uh, Europe, America uses the NMC, nickel, manganese, cobalt battery. Now, why why is this important to the listeners? It's actually absolutely critical that people understand this because the price action on that day leads me to believe that no one understands this. Hmm. Thermal runaway is a very important issue in batteries. That's the temperature at which the battery catches fire and incinerates the car. Mm-hmm. So for the N, for the NCA battery, the 811, that temperature is approximately 130 degrees centigrade. In the NMC battery, which you know today is a 532 and over time evolves into a 622 chemistry, that is almost 230 degrees centigrade. And so it is materially higher. And so safety is a major concern with the NCA battery. And we saw that even you know last week or earlier this week when there was that tragic accident in Florida where a young man wrecked his father's Tesla and, and it caught mm-hmm. fire. And so, and so you know what you're seeing is his uh, speed at which he reduced cobalt in that battery is actually a major safety concern. And so with the NMC battery and the higher cobalt content, what you have is a much safer, mm. uh, much safer battery. And that's globally being adopted as a standard. And so you know, he was kind of talking his own book. He's already at the 811 effectively. Right. I see. Earlier, uh, just through emails, you were mentioning you were in China, and uh, I guess you're seeing the future there with EVs. What, what do you make of uh, EVs in China and batteries and Technology. Yeah, so so we uh, you know we were really fortunate. We spent you know a couple weeks in the region, including a stop in Korea and Japan, and you know a few big takeaways. I think the first one is you know the battery makers we met with really feel that Western consumers are going to transition into the six two two over kind of two or three years. You know, it takes time to build up the uh, industrial capacity, mm-hmm. and then they're going to be there for a very long time. And in fact, you know, we heard time and time again, it's their view that, that the 622 becomes the most ubiquitous chemistry until such time as a solid-state battery emerges. Now, in the solid-state battery, what you have is you take graphite out of the battery, you replace it with something inert like, say, silica, and then you're able to move into an 811 chemistry and keep that thermal runaway temperature materially higher than it is you know, today. And so you know, one of the big takeaways was that you know, whereas some analysts kind of are calling for the 811 to be widely used outside of China in three to four years, you know, what we're hearing from battery makers is actually it's probably further away. You have the chemistry stabilizing in a 622, and then the next generation of chemistries and batteries really potentially being that solid state battery. And, and that's, um, you know, that's kind of interesting and not widely discussed, right. uh, you know, and so I thought that was quite insightful. The other, the other thing that we saw time and time again, and we met with the battery makers and the automakers as well, is you know, there's a wholesale commitment to this. And I, I don't think uh, if you haven't been in China and you haven't met with the companies, you can't fully appreciate internally and domestically the absolute mandate to electrify you know, the automobile industry. And, and you know, groups that we met with talk about 25% penetration rate inside of China in 2025, and mm-hmm. that's well above most analysts predictions around penetration hmm. how do you keep up on the battery technology and yeah well you know i think there are i would say it's not so tricky in the sense that i think that you know a lot of news flows around um new technologies but but commercializing a battery takes a decade right so you know from my perspective 
the lithium-ion battery, and, and for, you know, we speak to the CEOs of, of a lot of the major automakers around the world. The lithium-ion battery is the battery that's going to power the electric vehicles for at least the next decade, probably longer. Mm-hmm. The real conversation is around chemistries and evolution of those chemistries. And you know, what we've seen is the you know widespread, almost unanimous adoption of the NMC chemistry, mm-hmm. and we're talking about then you know the transition. You know, from a one 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 in the beginning and slowly to a five three two, and then probably next on to a six two two. And so, you know, battery technology for the electric vehicle, I, I think, you know, there's a pretty strong look five to ten years out. After that, is anyone's guess. And you know, from my perspective, that technology is lithium ion battery powered by the NMC chemistry. Now, you know, Tesla will continue on with the NCA, and maybe a few others will use it. Mm-hmm. But in so much as safety increasingly be, is becoming a concern in the U.S. and in Europe. With some of these fires, I think you will probably see a reticence for other automakers to move to that low cobalt chemistry where you have a potential for a catastrophic fire that harms the passengers. Right, right. Now, uh, I know you're just running off to the Platts Awards dinner, so I won't hold you too much longer, but just one more question. Cobalt prices have had such a great run. Uh, Where do you uh, see things right now with the cobalt price? Yeah, so look, you know, it's a classic scenario. We, we're in price discovery mode, and we're trying to find an incentive price to bring more cobalt into the system. And, and of course, cobalt being a byproduct, it's a little bit harder. So you have to have mm-hmm. you know, things like a refinery expansion where you collect additional units, uh, maybe tweaks in HPAL. Uh, you know, expansions in copper and nickel mines. And so I think what you're seeing today reflects a new source of demand and what was a relatively stable supply-demand uh, dynamic in the cobalt market. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, I, I think I think that it's only natural. You know, the 20-year average for cobalt was sort of $25, and today we're around 40 And what you're really doing is seeing a reflection in, in the new demand. And I'll, I'll note, and it's quite important, Two years ago, EV penetration was approximately zero. Mm-hmm. At the end of last year, it was 1.7, kind of 1.8 percent. Yes. And you know, I just saw the numbers, and year on year, we're up 74 percent right now. So, I, I suspect that, in fact, we're going to find that with all disruptive technology, when it hits a tipping point, it accelerates, and we're now at, at that point of acceleration with the EV. And so, I think adoption is going to accelerate, and that will be positive for cobalt, but you know, nickel and, and copper and lithium as well. Great, great. Okay, I guess we'll leave it there. I, I have tons of questions about Cobalt 27 itself, but we can save that for another day. Thanks a lot, John. Okay, thanks, Anthony. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Good stuff. Now let's take a break, and when we return, we were just with Anthony Milewski in London, and we'll return with the Canadian Mining Symposium, also held in London just a few weeks ago at Canada House. Before we get things going, this is the Battery Metals Roundtable, a deep dive into the crucial issues around supply and demand of the metals that will factor in most prominently to a greener future. So before we get things going, I might as well introduce our lovely set of panelists. At the far end of the table, we have Guy Barasa from Namaska Lithium. He's the president and CEO of Namaska Lithium. Uh, next to him, we have Robin Goad, who is the president and CEO of Fortune Minerals. Moving down the table, we have Rebecca Gordon, the Head of Technology Metals and Energy with CRU Consulting. And last but not least, we have the wonderful Lance Hooper, 
president and CEO of Cobalt Blockchain. To get things going, I think it's important to define a little bit uh, what we mean exactly by battery metals and kind of how that term has evolved over the years, where we are now, and even a maybe even a quick look at what's on the horizon. So to kind of get that discussion going, uh, Rebecca, uh, I'm going to go to you with that question. Hello, thank you very much for inviting me to come here today. It's a great honor. So within CRU Consulting, we have been covering technology matters probably since the 1980s when the cobalt market first got very interesting. Most recently, we're using the term to cover the commodities that are going both into batteries that go into electric vehicles. Obviously, that's the main driver at the moment, but also the commodities that go into stationary storage. And I'm not sure whether that's the subject today, but it mustn't be forgotten that to enable a revolution of electric vehicles, you have to stabilize the electric grids. And to stabilize the electric grids, you need storage. So battery metals is actually quite a broad term. So what what we include is um, the main commodities in electric vehicles. So they're under the big heading of lithium iron, but within that we have a variety of commodities that contribute different different aspects to those batteries. So the Japanese technology, nickel, cobalt, aluminium, and lithium, um, has been sold across to Tesla and is therefore quite well known and quite well adopted within the U.S. There's a nickel, cobalt, manganese, and lithium technology that came out of Korea, and that's really the one that's been adopted through Europe and through Asia, excepting Japan. And then in China, we, ha- we have a slightly different technology, the lithium-ion phosphate technology, which obviously is on different commodities and doesn't take advantage of the very strong electrochemical properties that nickel and cobalt bring to the party in the other two, com- in the other two chemistries. But it has its place, um, and in terms of the future for us, it, it offers a cheaper alternative for short-range vehicles, and it possibly underpins electric buses and applications such as that where you're not looking for acceleration. So in addition to the commodities I've mentioned, you're looking at graphite in the anodes. You're looking at a variety of um, other things that can be doped into the anode, so silicon, silicon balls, people talk about tin, um, and then an electrolyter mixture of chemicals that will probably evolve over time because the industry is looking to strengthen or increase the energy density of these cells to get the cost down. And that puts quite a lot of pressure on the electrolytes, which is the liquid inside the battery. So we're, we're expecting quite an evolution away from the current hydrocarbon-based electrolytes towards perhaps safer water-based or solid electrolytes, which give uh, a stronger safety element to, to those cells as the voltage goes up. So very strong growth, quite a breadth of commodities, actually, and quite a, a range of different products within those commodities that differ from what you expect if you just hear nickel, it's not the products that are being invested in to make nickel for stainless. It's different products, and the same for cobalt. I'm sure um, Guy will talk about the problems with metal versus um, sulfate pricing, um, but it's creating issues in the market. Right, and of course, like you said, there's this wide breadth of things that are actually covered. Yeah. Now, we do have representatives from cobalt and lithium companies yep. uh, at the panel, so maybe we'll stay focused to those kind of areas. Now, something that you mentioned early on there is that Things like electric vehicles are really driving this market. Without that explosion, we wouldn't really have this panel here today. Now, I know there's you know some debate about how explosive that growth is going to be in the future. So I know, Robin, I know you have a lot to say about that. So I'm going to throw it to you right now. Is the EV future as imminent as we think it is? And on top of that, you know, are there other technologies coming down the line that you think are going to have an impact on cobalt and lithium as well? Sure. We've been studying this metal for about... 25 years, obviously, we've been uh, been working on our project that long. One thing is, is really the, the marketplace has come to the recognition over the last 24 months that we are entering into a transformation in, in automobile. It's an industrial revolution. 
If I came here a year ago, I'd be talking about penetration rates in the auto sector of about 2%. I would say the conservative estimates right now are 10% uh, penetration by 2025 for electric automobiles over internal combustion engine-driven cars. Battery costs have uh, declined over the last uh, five years from uh, 1200 US dollars per kilowatt hour to about $140 per kilowatt hour. That is achieving near cost parity with an internal combustion engine. Uh, an electric car is a simpler engine. It delivers more torque. It's a superior technology. It's cleaner. There's no doubt that this is happening. You can argue about penetration rates. If you look at the German car industry, BMW, Daimler, and, uh, and Volkswagen are all projecting 25% penetration by, uh, by 2025. I would argue that China is the world leader in electric transformation or automotive electrification. There, they are incentivizing customers to buy electric cars and uh, also providing disincentive not only to buyers of internal combustion engine-driven cars, but also people who service that industry. So they're no longer providing subsidies for manufacturers that supply parts for internal combustion engine-driven cars. So there is a, a real initiative that's, that's happening. We're also seeing governments announcing bans on internal combustion engines here in the UK, in France, Norway, Netherlands. Also, uh, it's expected to, to happen shortly in, in China as well. So uh, this is happening. You can argue how many cars will be electric by different uh, periods of time, but it is happening. It's going to be very interesting to see what transpires, which car companies are going to survive. We're seeing convergence of automotive manufacturers, automotive OEMs with uh, technology companies, companies like Google and Apple with huge balance sheets are getting into this market. And then there's also the integration between autonomous driving, shared driving. We're really going through an incredible uh, transformation right now. It's, it's fun watching it and being part of the, uh, the supply chain for what's happening. It seems like once this technology gets going, in general, you really can't stop it. Is there any other tech that we can talk about that's maybe on the horizon that you think will play into lithium or cobalt and the demand for those commodities as well? For you or for the panel in general, I want... Guys, feel free to jump in if you have anything to add. I'm, I'm happy to chat on that. All I can do is regurgitate what I, what I hear from global experts, companies like LG, companies like Intel that are in the business. It's clear from, uh, from synthesizing all that information that, that the lithium-ion battery is going to be the technology standard for at least a decade, if not two decades. It takes an enormous amount of time not only to invent a new technology, but to commercialize it and to reduce your exposure to, to litigation. Obviously, you don't want fires to uh, happen in, in batteries. The application that's uh, stationary storage versus uh, electric automobiles versus uh, portable electronic devices all take advantage of different cathode chemistries. So, uh, for example, if you want volumetric energy density in a, uh, in a, you want a thin cell phone battery, you have to have LCO, lithium cobalt oxide. 60% cobalt by weight, whereas if you want an, an automotive uh, application, it's NCA and NMC, there the drivers are charge life, being able to uh, essentially have a long distance. Uh, safety is a, is a critical issue, whereas charge time is, is more of an issue for a small electronic device. So it's a little bit more complicated. There's not one cathode chemistry that's uh, superior for every application. There are different cathode chemistries that are configured for the application. 
I think one of the interesting things that's happening is because of the different, the relative prices of the commodities, actually the nickel in those cells offers the strongest electropotential, but it's the least stable. So you're actually seeing some of these, you hear about one, 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 one nickel to one cobalt to one manganese, and then five nickels to three cobalts to two manganese, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but actually there's a lot of work going on to move towards the higher nickel because of, of it does offer that slightly higher potential and the cost of cobalt as you're well aware, has gone up very dramatically. Um, so it, it is interesting that the technology enables within those cathodes for people to blend the commodities through the cathode to get exactly the performance they want. So I, I agree that at the moment, that on the horizon, there's no, no completely new technology, but I see a continual evolution of people learning how to make those cells better and learning how to push the boundaries. Because at 140, we, we agree there's cost parity in the US with an internal combustion engine with the current subsidies for an eight-year life. But elsewhere, we're not quite there yet. So this, the global standard of about $100 per kilowatt hour is, is quite a stretch with the current technology. And I want to bring Guy in mm. and Lance into the conversation as well, which is the explosion of lithium and, and cobalt-focused companies. Do you guys see any concern for market saturation in terms of these commodities coming up on the horizon? I'll go to Guy first. Well, yeah. as, far, as far as lithium is concerned, I absolutely see no short-term uh, balance market. It takes uh, it, Everybody looks at this, or most of people look at this as a mining project. Uh, this is uh, a chemical, uh, highly specialized product. So we analyze this as a mining project. We look at tons. We put that in an Excel sheet, and we don't absolutely put no impact on the qualification process. So it takes a lot of time to qualify a new production facility and a new producer and its product. So uh, it's easy to, to think that because there's new spot domain production coming online in, China, in Australia, that automatically three months later there will be additional tons of finished product. It does not work like this. So, uh, and it takes a lot more time. And uh, you see that new technologies have to come and new processes have to come online to be able to support that. So, uh, and people also don't make the difference between carbonate and hydroxide. And carbonate and hydroxide, technical grade, battery grade. Inside China, rest of the world. So, most of the new growth in the supply has come in the last six, seven years from the conversion of spot domain strictly in China. But uh, just for your information, most of that material does not qualify for the rest of the world. So when you see new demand coming from the Volkswagen of this world, just to put that in perspective, 25% of, of electric vehicles sold in 2025 by Volkswagen, that's 2.5 million cars. 2.5 million cars needs roughly 115 to 120,000 tons of battery-grade hydroxide of a quality that does not exist in China. Currently, there's not 80,000 ton capacity around the world. So you have to wonder, well, I suppose if I was Volkswagen, I would wonder, where are you going to take that material? If you look at the, the capacities, all of these OEM car manufacturers, they behave like a OEM car manufacturer. They want suppliers. They want to have diversity of suppliers, not to be at the mercy of one. But when you need 120,000 tons of hydroxide of good quality, and you want to have, let's say, four suppliers, it means that you need 30,000 tons per supplier. Well, the actual uh, largest hydroxide production capacity in the world is 16,000 tons. The second largest is being built currently is 24,000 tons. We're building one currently that's going to be 33,000 tons. 
Of course, as a supplier, you don't want to rely on only one client. So <laughs> how many suppliers do you think a, Vol a Volkswagen of this world will need? It's absolutely impossible that you get saturation of the market in the next six, seven years. Well, I don't see it. We don't agree on, uh, on that. But uh, when you look at the details and you think and you realize that, yes, China is a, a big market. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take its own inside material. But the other players around the world, and I, I amaze people when I say, I met with a Chinese group lately, and they said, uh, I said, well, what do you bring to the table? Well, we're opening the Chinese market to you. He says, well, <laughs> my business case, I don't sell one kilo in China. I sell in, in Japan, in Korea, in Europe, in North America. And there's more demand in these countries than what I can produce on my own life. So you really, really, really need to dig into it and see the details and what's available and what's really coming online. And after that, how long is going to take to qualify it? If people say, well, there's a lot of new production capacity being built currently in China, that's incorrect. But let's assume that it was. And they build very rapidly and the money is no object. I don't agree on this, but anyway, at the end of the day, a new facility will need to be qualified. And qualification process, if you listen to BASF recently, they talk about three to four years. If you listen to somebody else, it will be a year to two years. But you count that in years. So two years to build a plant, two years to qualify it. Well, we're about 2025 when you think about everything that goes around it. Do we see a bubble? No. Do we send oversupply? Personally, I don't. Lance, do you have anything to add yeah, to that? Though? Just on the, the cobalt front, which is a domain that we know uh, better than lithium, we're looking about five years out, which is most of the analysts that, that we look at who are predicting the future. There's certainly a supply deficit uh, with cobalt. 65% of the world's cobalt comes out of the Congo. And of that, it's certainly a large component is industrial mines. Uh, an area that we work, work with and in is in the artisanal small-scale uh, sector. And we're seeing probably in the next three, four years, increased supply coming out of the Congo, where it's actually going to make up about 75% of, of world cobalt supply. But it's absolutely constrained. Uh, the technology is evolving. Uh, there's certainly a, an interest in finding batteries that either use less cobalt or no cobalt. But based on the, the battery chemistry, it's a, a critical element. Uh, we saw uh, some research put out last week uh, looking, even if the price of cobalt doubled, you're going to see that you know a, a Tesla Model 3 is only going to go up by 2% MSRP. So uh, despite the fact that it's an expensive metal, it's a, it's a critical one. But yeah, I think ultimately it, it's in uh, short supply. The world's trying to come up with that supply through new projects that are coming online. But absolutely, we've got a, a window here, uh, uh, short term, four or five years. And I think what we're seeing is kind of some of this big picture discussion is that this future is very real. It's coming and that you guys are all in a really important and fortunate position. One of the things that I really like about the set of panels is that you all have very unique and interesting projects. So I'm going to stick with you for a minute, Lance. Your business model, I've never really, really heard of anything quite like it. So I'm kind of wondering if you could just, for those who maybe don't know, break down what sure. that business model is and in particular the traceability aspect of it, which kind of factors in in a pretty big way to what you guys no, are doing. We've been involved with, uh, I've been working with my father, Peter Hooper, who's a, a mining engineer. We've been involved with traditional exploration development projects around the world, a two million ounce gold discovery in the northeast of the Congo, a hundred million pound uh, uranium project in Peru that also has some lithium in it. 
but yeah, the last three and a half years, I've been in the Congo specializing in sourcing conflict-free metals, which is tin, tantalum, tungsten. Really, we're metal traders, metal concentrate traders. We, in the supply chain, we're the intermediary between artisanal mine sites and our off-taker, which is Traxxas Europe. Ultimately, this is a, a massive business in, in Africa and South America. When you look at Congo alone, it employs about 2 million people directly. It's responsible for 100% of tin, tantalum, tungsten, diamonds, about 20% of copper, cobalt in that one country alone. And 20% of the, the cobalt market represents more than a billion-dollar industry. We think there, it's an interesting model with, with our cobalt uh, initiative here. We've, uh, this is a, we've vended in our private DRC subsidiary into into this new TSX-listed project called Cobalt Blockchain. And ultimately, we're, we've been moving pretty quickly, but we're two months away from uh, realizing our first uh, container load of ethically sourced cobalt. And it's very different. You know, traditionally, an exploration project last years uh, to put a mine in place takes even longer if you're lucky enough to find a, an economic uh, deposit. So we're, we're going to continue trading in tin, tantalum, tungsten. We're adding copper cobalt to the mix uh, by June. As I mentioned, we'll be uh, ready to, to sell our first material. Beyond that, we're in the world of three Ts, tin, tantalum, tungsten. It's, they've been considered conflict minerals because in the northeast of the Congo, uh, that's historically where you've seen conflict. And it was actually U.S. legislation, the, the Dodd-Frank Act, that effectively told SEC issuers that they have to report annually. If they're using these elements in their products, uh, they need to provide an annual report to make sure that they know where it came from and they know under which conditions it was produced. So out of that came the OECD due diligence guidance on responsible mineral supply chains. And that's ultimately resulted in on the ground, each mine site, uh, there's an annual audit done there's ongoing monitoring, and it's really to ensure there are no kids working in these mines, there are no armed groups benefiting, there are no government actors imposing illegal taxes, and there's baseline workplace health and safety uh, environmental practices. So the copper cobalt belt in, is in the south of, of the Congo, uh, bordering the Congo-Zambian border. Historically, there's been no conflict. So what we're doing at the moment in conjunction with our trading business is layering in traceability. It's really an attempt the DRC has had a bad rap the last year and a half, uh, mainly reports put out by Amnesty International looking at child labor in these mines. And we visited uh, a number of these sites over the last four months. It's an exception, but there's a lot of negative publicity about cobalt coming out of artisanal sites in the Congo. And really, it's on us to solve that problem. It's a very solvable problem. We're implementing uh, a new system. It's going to involve international third-party actors, so there, there's validation. And ultimately, we're trying to certify this as ethically sourced material. Underlaying this due diligence protocol, we're going to be putting it on a blockchain. It's a fantastic use case for this new technology that allows, really, it's a distributed database. And that buys you better security, better immutability, uh, more transparency. So it's a better better mousetrap. And ultimately, it's going to allow car manufacturers, electronic companies to have greater visibility into where their product comes from. Phase two is to actually look at monetizing that, monetizing good behavior and actually assigning, letting the market assign a value to that. It's of interest in the artisanal small-scale world, but we've certainly had early conversations with a large gold producer in Canada. Their argument is that they receive the same dollar per ounce of gold as a mine that doesn't have, doesn't operate the, the highest international standards for workplace health and safety, environmental practices, community engagement, all of these things that they spend a tremendous amount of time and money on. 
there certainly should be some value to that. So that's coming. That's in the future. But uh, ultimately, we're a metal trading business, but also we, we certainly see great appetite for, for mineral traceability above and beyond just African and small-scale mining. Awesome. And I know, Robin, you also have a cobalt-based project. Could you speak a bit about what makes that unique as well? Do you see, you know, Lance's knee-deep in this traceability stuff, do you see application for traceability outside of the Congo in battery metals uh, in general? Okay, uh, so there's a couple of questions there. Yeah. So, the, so the, the first one is the market is growing at 200 to 300%. You can, you can decide yourself whether it's 2 or 3 or 250%, but it's growing very quickly. And we're going to need all the cobalt that can be produced. We don't want to see significant disruption to the supply from the DRC, so because that's just going to create hyperinflation in the in the price, and that's going to probably damage the market. You're looking at uh, automotive OEMs; they like stability. They want to see a price, uh, and they want to make sure that they can get the material, or they're just going to promote additional substitution faster. Like Guy, our project is vertically integrated in Canada. So we can demonstrate supply chain transparency from ores right through to the production of value-added chemicals. We will produce a cobalt sulfate product. This has been a 25-year project, to, um, and unfortunately, to develop a mine in uh, most developed countries these days, it does take a minimum of 10 years, up to 20 years to, to develop. So to have a project that is effectively shovel-ready today is, uh, is fortuitous. But being able to um, demonstrate supply chain transparency with a material that's not going to impact the brand of companies like Apple or, uh, or LG or Samsung, these are very critical. And, uh, and obviously, a vertically integrated project in Canada can, can do that. If you are a DRC producer, clearly you're going to have to demonstrate that your material is not coming from an unethical source of supply, whether it be environmental degradation, child labor, or uh, exploitation of, of workers, political issues, conflicts. Obviously, we don't have those issues in, in Canada. That is certainly uh, uh, an opportunity for our company, and some people would argue that we may even get a premium for our product not having those issues as part of our supply chain. And then at the end of the table, Guy, your lithium project. You know, so many of these lithium projects, they're brine-based. Uh, you're a little bit different. Could you kind of give us an overview of, you know, hard rock versus brine and, and what makes your project a little bit different? Well, what makes our project different from any other hard rock project is the fact that we've decided early on to be vertically integrated. So uh, there is, and it's disappearing, but there's still a myth that uh, brines are by far more economic than hard rock projects. But it's a false debate. It, uh, people were comparing integrated uh, the cheapest Chilean uh, brine producers with non-integrated high-cost uh, Chinese converters, depending on third parties to provide the raw material. But uh, our feasibility study and what we've done up to now completely proves that you can easily compete with Argentina and uh, Chile as far as the cost of production is concerned. So a vertically integrated project in Quebec in this case, or it could be anywhere else near the mine, uh, could compete and have a good quality product that compares very well with any brine projects in the world. The interest also of our project specifically is that we are aiming principally to, uh, or mainly to produce hydroxide. We uh, realized uh, very early on that hydroxide was 
to become a compound of choice for the new chemistry of the batteries. That's a good choice. At the beginning, people were laughing at us because they thought that there was no market for hydroxide or big quantities of hydroxide. But nowadays, everybody is changing his mind. February 2014 was a very, very important date, date for us because until that time, nobody was believing in our business case. But in February 2014, Elon Musk announced that he was building its own gigafactory. Suddenly, we people realized that its gigafactory for 500,000 cars only requires 28,000 tons of lithium hydroxide alone. That's the full production of our mine. So uh, it changed the, the overall vision uh, of any players. So now you see everybody, instead of talking carbonate, they're talking hydroxide. But they are five, six years behind because they have not done any work on this. So uh, that's one of the other advantages that we present with our project. Excellent. And I think we have just a couple minutes left, so I want to open things up to the floor. If anyone has any questions for our wonderful panelists, feel free. What I'm uh, hearing, sorry, it's Mike White from IBK Capital. What, what I'm hearing is that uh, supply, cobalt supply is needed now, and new mines coming on will take some time. Different types of materials need to be qualified. Lance, you mentioned that you'll be trading in cobalt in the next couple of months. What type of impact will you have on the cobalt market? And what does that mean? What's the impact back to your corporation? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, April 6th, we announced uh, our initial supply agreement with one of the largest mining cooperatives in Lualaba province, which is the epicenter of large-scale uh, large high-grade cobalt planet, uh, projects on the planet. So. Ultimately, it's a supply agreement. It sounds small, but it's 40,000 tons uh, on an annual basis. The average grade will be about 3-4%. This is what artisanal miners sell to us. They uh, produce it by hand. Ultimately, that's going to be uh, about 1,500 tons of cobalt, which is about 1% of, of the world market. Uh, and that's on our initial supply agreement. So we've had a nice run the last uh, few months. Uh, we've got a $50 million market cap. But if you do the fundamental valuation on that one contract alone, really it's worth about uh, $50, $50 million in free-flowing cash on an annual basis. So that's part of our objective is to grow our supply agreements, but also bring online. We've certainly staked some ground. We have about 50 square kilometers of highly prospective uh, copper cobalt ground in the Congo and will augment supply from artisanal uh, stream with uh, mechanized production as well. The really interesting thing in the cobalt market is not so much that we're actually short total material today because the, with the new announcements from Glencore and the ramp up from um, RTR, the ERG asset in Congo, you're starting to see quite strong production of cobalt sulfate coming in for the next couple of years, what we actually have is a market which is priced off metal. So the metal market is quite separate and the material that's going into the metal stream at the moment is quite constrained because those are markets, we are not talking about it today, but cobalt's also used in super alloys and the super alloy market is actually growing very, very strongly as well. And it's, it, it's used in jet engines and it's used in coal-fired power stations, it's used in a lot of very high-tech applications which all the same green regulations that push you towards electric vehicles also push you towards cleaner jet engines which consume the metal. So today a lot of the price is supported by a shortage in metal in our view and you've got cobalt sulfate coming in but within a very short number of years the fundamental lack of big projects does talk to shortages in cobalt sulfate. 
not today, so metal's tight today. And I think bringing the artisanal material into, into the fore and actually starting to quantify it doesn't add material as such. What it does is make that material accessible because um, we actually, as the prices go up, artisanal material does come into the market. You can look at it every year. There is material, but having it appropriate and, and, and more people willing to consume that will, will loosen the market a little bit. But some of it's to do with the pricing. So with all the prices being quoted in cobalt off metal, it's quite hard to see that differential between metal and sulfate. It'll also be very interesting to see uh, actually how fast these new projects are going to be able to commission. Uh, Roan Tailings and, uh, and Katanga are talking about a fairly aggressive ramp-up, so it would be interesting to see. Thank you for the question. I think, oh, do we have one more? Hi, Linda Rachan. This is a question for Lance. How do you deal with the perception that all that comes from the DRC is negative in regards to corruption or child labor or conflicts because this can ultimately affect your supplier agreements and the trading activities that you are actively involved in. Yeah, it's a great question. And really, I think there, there are two choices you can make with the Congo. It's a country that we've grown to love over the last 12 years. It certainly has its challenges. But in terms of what we're doing now and the perception that all artisanal material is bad and it involves child labor, Certainly not the case from our, our perspective. Uh, but there are two approaches. Uh, you can disengage, let it rot, blame the government, uh, blame the local incumbent partners, or you can engage responsibly. There's a problem, uh, there's a solution. Quite an easy so solution in our, our view. But yeah, it's, every country has, has political risk. Um, there's certainly all kinds of ways to mitigate that. Most countries have corruption, including this one in Canada, the Charbonneau Commission, if you want to look at construction in Canada, every country has it. And there are two sides to the corruption point. It takes someone who asks and someone who pays. And you don't need to, you don't need to participate in that realm if you don't want to. And it's a, a very slippery slope if you, if you do. Congo is the size of Western Europe. It's a massive country. It's got nine bordering countries and it's regionally very different. Uh, there's still about 20,000 UN peacekeepers in the country, but they're up in the Kivus, up in the northeast of the country. If you come down to Katanga, Lualaba province, the infrastructure is, is drastically different. You've got paved roads, you've got power, you've got cell phones that work almost everywhere, and you don't see any UN peacekeepers there. So to paint the, the Congo with one brush, I think, is a mistake. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a workable country, and if you want evidence, look at the billions of dollars of direct foreign investment that have flown in over the past number of years, and we'll continue to do. This is a mineral-rich country, and it needs responsible, uh, responsible partners that want to engage with communities, with the provincial government, with the federal government on a different level. You know, it does seem like we could really talk about this all day, but unfortunately, we're out of time. I'd like to ask for a big round of applause for our wonderful panelists. That does it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll come back next episode with a in-depth look at the Quebec Plan Nord. That's the massive infrastructure program put together by the Quebec government and supported by industry and uh, local communities. We're going to have a holiday weekend here in English Canada. So enjoy the holiday if you're in English Canada. Otherwise, uh, just enjoy the we normal weekend and see you next episode. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.